0: It's so great to be here. It was 19 years ago that we uh, left, sorry I stay all the way this the speaker, uh, here, but we have been able to be back a few times. So Somebody asked me if I had pictures of the family and I failed to do so. I should have put something up there, but our kids are now 25 down to 16 and our life is very full uh, there in Louisville and we love it. But I often think back to here and all the ways that many of you here invested in, in me and in our family and I'm, I'm very, very thankful for that. Um, So, last night I started talking about, and if you weren't here, it's totally fine, but last night I started talking about Christianity, helping us think about Christianity as more than just a religion, it is a religion, it's a revealed truth, but also as something offering us a a full vision of how to live well. How to live well, and so what I want to talk about today and then in, in the second session are kind of a- applying and unpacking that idea. What does Holy Scripture and what does Christianity have to say about some really big, very personal and practical kind of issues? And you should have a handout for today. Is that out, around, everybody have the handout? Great, um, because, and, and what we're gonna talk about particularly is emotions, which sounds kind of weird, but what I, was ta- what I started talking about last night and what I talk about in the book is that the philosophers of the ancient world were the people who really helped people live well. And one of the biggest areas where we all need help to learn how to live well is with the area of emotions. Now, some of you may immediately think, oh no, I don't wanna talk about emotions. Well, that's, this is particularly for you then. But it's actually for all of us to start paying attention to this very human aspect of our emotions. But let me start with, um, do we have a PowerPoint here? Let me start with this first little, uh, next, next slide if you could, yeah, okay. So I actually just wanna ask you here, and you, you've got a handout, hopefully you have something to write with as well. I want you to just take 15 seconds and pay attention to what emotions you have going on right now. And there's kind of big, there's, we often talk about kind of five big categories of emotions, mad, sad, glad, afraid, and ashamed or kind of most emotions can be fit into one of those categories. There are permutations, perturbed or something, right? But let me just give you a few seconds, and I'm not going to call on you for any answers, but just pay attention, maybe write down what, what are one or two emotions you're aware of right now. I'll be quiet for a second and let you think about that. Maybe that's not a question you ever ask yourself. Um, I know for me, I feel some excitement. I also feel some insecurity. Um, I feel some distraction, uh, which isn't exactly an emotion, but I'm aware. Maybe some of you, some of you here are probably very attuned to your emotions, some of you don't think about them much, some of you have a studied, you've learned for 30 or 40 years to not pay attention to your emotions. Maybe, maybe your father or your mother told you as a young child emotions are bad, and so you've learned to not pay attention to them. But the reality is, friends, a large part of what you and I do on a, in a daily life is actually being driven by this God-given reality of emotions. You may not pay attention to them, but the reality is you and I are motivated by all kinds of things going on inside of us. They are a powerful and inescapable part of what it means to be human. Emotions are what drive us to love and to marry and to divorce and to kill and to care, to invest, to sacrifice. If you start paying attention to why we do what we do, it's driven largely by emotions. Emotions cause us to worship invisible deities, to never drink or drink too much or whatever it is. All these things are driven by that. And again, some people are more attuned to what's going on in their emotional lives and that has to do with genetics. Some people just are more inclined genetically to be aware of their emotions. A lot of it has to do with personality. Again, a lot of it has to do with upbringing and family of origin and current job. There's a million things that go into this, but the reality is this, that we, whether we are aware of emotions or not, they are affecting us. In fact, one of, a really key principle for life is that whatever we don't process comes out sideways. So in other words, whatever we don't learn to pay attention to what's going on, it's not that it goes away, it actually just comes out sideways in addictions, in relationships, in habits, in ways that we show up with other people. See, our emotions are always present, they're always affecting us, and I think as much now than ever, I mean, we are living in an extremely polarized time and culture, this won't last, it never does, um, this is a cyclical th- sort of thing that happens. But the degree of emotions that people feel on all kinds of issues are seem to be extremely ramped up. Masks or no ma- masks, vaccines are no, you know, Democrat, Republican, you name it, racial issues. This is a time where there are a lot of emotions being expressed, very ramped up, and you probably feel them more than you have maybe even five years ago or so, just how quickly you feel yourself getting upset about something, that's all Well, let me skip ahead um, another slide or two here. I think I skipped, yeah, let's start here. So what are our emotions? Well, I don't think we can do much better than to start with good old um, inside out. I hope you've all seen this movie. How many of you have seen this movie? It's been a while, if not, you should watch it. It's a very powerful um, I think along with the original Toy Story and a few others, Up and Other, this is Pixar at its best. I mean, great storytelling and very profound. And if you haven't seen it, apologies for a bit of a spoiler alert. Then again, if you haven't seen it by this point, sorry, but not sorry. You probably, it's, it's, this is on you. So there will be a little bit of a spoiler. You should still watch it. But the Inside Out title refers to... The way in which the the main character in the story, Riley, who's a, an 11-year-old girl, how how the story alternates all through through it between the inside of what's going on inside of her and the outside appearance, and that's that's why it's titled that the going back and forth. And when you go inside of Riley, what you find is this very creative way of describing what's going on in, in why she's doing what she's doing. She has this, there's this big control panel and there are five characters that live inside of her that each represent different emotions. Joy, sadness, fear, disgust, and anger, and they're played by great actors and actresses, so it's really, it's really fun, it's really well done. Um, and not only is the whole story you know, just really well told, it's classic kind of Pixar, it also includes you know some really funny moments like when she when they arrive in in california and she goes to get pizza and then anger the emotion inside of her comes out because she says congratulations san francisco you've even ruined pizza because the only pizza has broccoli on it right so so this is a a very anger response in that moment right but really what's going on is that this story functions at at two levels very profoundly there's the the story of the the narrative level of what's going on with the kid, Riley, that you can enjoy, but there's something deeper going on in this story that communicates a very profound message for us, for adults as well. And at one climactic scene, Riley is overwhelmed with anger and disappointment. She's, you know, they've moved across the country, she's lost all her friends, all this disappointment and hurt, and she, she goes to run away. And what happens inside when it cuts inside to the story, the emotions console in her has turned completely dark because the, the various emotions have just taken over. And, and instead of feeling any of the emotions, she experiences depression, which is really, in a lot of ways, a, a, a lack of awareness of emotions or a, or a feeling of emotions that are so strong that you can't really connect with anything. And so the, the whole console panel goes dark and she's completely shut down. But what happens is is very important is that in that moment when she's about to finally run away, which would have been a disaster, she's getting on a bus, the only emotion that can actually make her come back alive and get out of this completely dark console is not joy, which is what you and I would tend to think, but it was actually sadness that it was her connecting to the emotion of sadness that enabled her to sort of come back alive. That's a very profound insight from the writers of the story, that we tend to think that the opposite of you know, negative emotions is necessarily joy, but in this case, she was completely shut down and what she needed to do was actually get connected with the sadness so that she could start to experience life again. And at the heart of this movie's vision is really what it means to be human and what it means to experience true joy. And, and again, there's a lot more to the story that I won't get into for time's sake, but at the end of the day, what happens is, if you remember the story, she learns that in childhood, and I think a lot of, for a lot of us as adults, we think that just being happy or being joyful in a kind of pure way is what life is really about, but what she has to learn is that her core memories, these sort of core aspects of who she is, are in reality most rich and most alive when they're, they are a true combination of the range of emotions we experience, both joy and sadness, both contentment and disappointment. And that what, the, the beauty and power of this story is that the mature version of Riley this 11-year-old girl who's maturing, is one where everything's not okay all the time, but that she comes to actually embrace the complexity of what it means to be a human. The complexity that our lives are marked by this this wide variety of of emotions. And I think that is a great insight and leads into what I really want to press into and and connect it to the Bible as well. I wanna talk about what exactly our emotions are and how to, how to think about them biblically. Well, the experts on our emotions today um, are mostly psychologists and neurologists of all sorts. Our English word emotion is, I think, usually read, and maybe by you this morning already, as a very negative word, and I wanna come back to that. And we often define it as like strong feelings as distinguished from reasoning or knowledge. So we've often kind of started to talk about emotions in this very negative way, that it's the opposite of clear thinking, okay? So for example, as one pastor he's a great exercise he does, what if I said to you today, I was talking to you before or after this, and I said, you seem very emotional today versus if I said, you seem very rational today Which of those would you rather have me say to you? Wives, don't you love it when your husband says to you, you seem very emotional today? (laughs) Little pro tip, I'm heading on to 29 years. Not a little public service announcement, that's not a helpful thing to say to your spouse, right? But, But notice, what I wanna kinda pull back from that and notice is that we have defined the word emotions negatively by putting it in contrast to being rational. And I think that's a problem. I think that reveals something, a misstep in our conceptualization of what emotions are. And again, the residential experts today on emotions are again psychologists and neurologists. And in fact, you have this, you have this tendency, as you do in a lot of these issues, for people to, read, to interpret emotions in two very different ways. Some people would emphasize that emotions are purely neurological and chemical so that some people discuss them and talk about them that what's going on in emotion is really just the injection of certain hormones and adrenaline and things into your blood system and that we perceive it as a change of emotion and then we describe it as such so some people describe it that way other people on the more psychological side would say that actually what's going on in your body is, is certainly part of it, but that, that we would primarily describe emotions in psychological terms, and that the body's sort of interacting with those things. So there's two different very ways, very different ways people talk about it, and the theologian, Kevin Van Hooser, just up the road at Trinity, he, when he has talked about emotions, he has rightly observed that everybody tends to kind of go one way or the other. They kind of tend to make emotions all about psychology without paying attention to the, to the chemical and neurological side, or they talk about them only kind of neurologic and not talk about the psychological side. And of course, the truth is probably in both of those. Part of it is again that our word "emotions" is—it's a—it's a difficult word. Um, it where it comes from, I think, or what it, what it means for us now, I think it tries to cover too many different things, as my old mother would say, I think the word emotions is too big for its britches, is what she would say, and that it's it's too, it's trying to cover too many different things, because actually, in the ancient world, and we'll get to the philosophers here in a second, in the ancient world, they distinguished between something like we would call emotions and something like passion, where we kind of lump all those things together. They would distinguish things that are kind of uncontrolled emotions versus controlled emotions in a way that we don't. We tend to use this word very negatively. I think we also have this problem that we think of, we we often talk in terms of head versus heart, right? So head would be this rational, heart would be this emotional, and we'd often negatively say, well, some people would say, follow your heart, by which we mean do whatever you feel like doing, and others people would say, don't follow your heart. But even that construction of head versus heart, I think is unhelpful because biblically, that's not the biblical understanding of how humanity is made we don't have this like really clear distinction between our rationality and our passions in fact the word for heart that we translate from heart into the english word heart in both hebrew and greek means something more like the the true inner person which includes both your thinking and your feeling the way they kind of they thought about what a human is they don't make this really sharp distinction between head and heart heart is really the interior person versus the exterior person so We have lots of confusion, I think, about what emotions are when we go to talk about them. Now in the ancient world, again, the philosophers, the the Aristotles and the Platos and the Seneca and others, it turns out, very surprisingly, they thought a ton about emotions. And they wrote whole long works about what emotions are. And they also disagree with each other, kind of like we do today, the interesting neurologists and psychologists. So let me just run through real quickly, because I think it's in- interesting to see how the different people have talked about emotions, and then we'll turn to the Bible and see what it has to say. First, in, in Plato's tradition, so we can call the Platonic tradition, um, if you can go on to the next slide here, they would emphasize that emotions are non-cognitive, that they are not something connected to the head. And so one of the famous illustrations that Plato uses to describe emotions is that the soul is like a charioteer who is trying to control two different horses. And one of them is passion, the sort of uncontrollable things we have feel in us, and the other is rationality. And for Plato, passions, not emotions, but passions are this uncontrollable thing that you have to spend your life trying to kind of control but you really can't with your mind. Your mind is this other horse. And the only way to really control this is like music and art and aesthetic experiences. So, so, the, so Plato's view, and which becomes very influential, is that again, emotions are this or passions are this uncontrollable thing that you really can't affect with your mind at all. One of the ways this comes down uh, into ancient Greek medicine was with the idea, this is a very dominant view of medicine in the ancient world, especially a guy called Galen, that actually there are four different liquids in your body, four different humors as they're called, which are blood, yellow bile, black bile, and phlegm, right, and that every person is some different combination of those four. So I don't know if you remember I remember way back in the 80s the first time I ever ran across a personality test. It was actually based on this. Do you remember remember this personality test that was a you're either sanguine, choleric, phlegmatic or melancholic, anybody remember that one, right? I remember that, that was based on this sort of idea that, of course, in the personality world, they didn't say, it depends on which, how much yellow bile you have in you, you know, we didn't talk that way, but that's actually what it's based on, that every person is a combination of these four things, and you really can't control your passions, it's just a function of which of the four humors or liquids is more dominant in your body, okay? Now, Plato's most famous student, Aristotle, goes on to create a whole different way of thinking about everything. I mean, almost everything is different. And he also thought and talked a lot about emotions, and he has a very different view, and he emphasizes, and this becomes what's called the the cognitive tradition, that actually um, passions or emotions are something that we can and should learn to control with our minds, because that's the way to find true happiness or human flourishing, and that the person is actually a unity combined of both thinking and feeling, and you need a healthy person is gonna be one who learns to kind of combine these things in a good way. And so emotions are the result, always for Aristotle, of a way of perceiving something. Emotions come from seeing in a certain way. And so the illustration I give you here uh, is of a nice looking steak and a pile of bricks, okay? So if, if I had these in front of you, if I set down on your table, a steak and a pile of bricks, right? Aside from the olfactory elements and other things, but even as part of that, what Aristotle would say is, how do you feel about these two different items, right? Well, how you would feel about them is dependent on your judgments or your perceptions, your thinking, the subconscious, I mean, it's pretty quickly happening in your neurons, about, that go with both of those two items. If you are hungry and you've had a great steak, then there's something going on cognitively that's gonna make you feel very positively about that. And if you're really hungry and somebody hands you a pile of bricks, you're not gonna feel good about that. Unless you're a vegetarian, right? And then you're gonna have a different set of cognitive assumptions and judgments that's gonna make you feel very differently about that. Or if your house is about to be flooded, the the rock river is coming up to to your basement here, or whatever it is, and somebody then hands you a huge pile of bricks, you're gonna feel more positively about those in that moment as well. So what's the difference? It's actually not in the object, it's in your perception of the value of the object, right? So this is the Aristotelian view, that emotions are the response to some kind of perception. Okay? Now coming down out of that tradition, around the time of Jesus and the 100 years before and a couple hundred years, few hundred years after, there's one philosophy that becomes the almost universal philosophy among regular people and thoughtful people all throughout the Greek, the end of the Greek, and especially in the Roman Empire, and it's called Stoicism. And Stoicism was super popular. I don't know what we could compare it to today because there's probably nothing that's as widespread as Stoicism was. But Stoicism became the dominant, like really popular, flock. I guess it would be something like CrossFit or whatever it is today, something, I don't know if that's big around here, but where I live, a ton of people learn to CrossFit, whatever it is, that just a ton of people do and say, this is where I found life. And the Stoics were really the dominant ones in this. And it comes out of the Aristotelian tradition, but it's also different a little bit. It has some it has some similarities, it's got some connections with Buddhism actually and yoga practices. And what the Stoics say is the goal to life, here's the whole goal. You wanna know how to live a good life? Here it is. It can all be boiled down to one word, the Greek word ataraxia, which means something like tranquility. So how do you determine, how do you find a truly good life? You learn to find this centered tranquility no matter what. And how do you do that? You do that through apetheia, that is freedom from pathos, freedom from passions. So you wanna be happy? You all do. You need to learn that you need to get free from all of your passions. That's the key, to be happy. So I always think of this great T-shirt you can buy about Darth Vader's emotions, right? Here he is, when he's angry, sad, happy, confused, cheerful, right? That's, uh, that's not totally fair to Stoicism, but that's kind of the idea, is that the key to being happy is actually to get free from any emotions. The little thing on the right here is, uh, those are my actually Stoicism coins. Stoicism was so big in the ancient world, so influential, that it became kind of branded even, but in the modern world, there's a lot of people that are totally into Stoicism today, in fact, there's whole books on this. I, I, I have like a daily devotional book of Stoicism that I read, <laughs> not every day, but you can buy like daily devotional books of Stoic practices where you read little, little sayings from the philosophers. And you can also buy these coins, these really fancy like gold and silver coins that some friends of mine bought for me after I gave a talk on this sometime, kind of as a joke, but not entirely. Uh, and what these coins have on them is, is little Latin phrases that are the kind of principles of Stoicism, like memento more, remember that you're gonna die. That's like a key Stoic pra- practice is that to be happy, every day you remind yourself that you could die today, and if you don't die today, you're probably gonna die very soon, right? And why do you do that every morning? Because that teaches you to separate yourself from your emotions, because that's the only place you'll be happy. Another one uh, says, um, meditatio malorum, which means uh, every day meditate on all the horrible things that could happen to you. (laughs) So this is like one of the daily practices, so you wake up this morning and you say, you know, there's a decent chance my kids are all gonna get you know, killed today and me too, right? And why do you do that? You do that, the Stoics say, I mean, it's not quite that trite, but they do it because once you sort of practice that, it will help you get free from the power of the negative emotions, because if you are controlled by these negative emotions, you won't have a happy life, right? So you can buy these stoicism coins. I have them, like I said, I, I read this stuff. It's interesting. I, I think there's some fundamental problems with stoicism, and there's also some wisdom in it, right? To learn to sort of pay attention, to, to think about um, our life in this kind of sober way. So here's the big question then. So modern people, psychologists, neurologists, they tell us a ton about emotions. There's a billion industry in self-help every year just in America alone. There's a ton of people out there trying to tell you, here's how to be happy. Ancient philosophers talked a ton about this and they had very detailed views about how to do it. Here's the question, what about the Christian faith? What's the Bible say about this massive issue of finding happiness in our emotions? Well, that's what I want to just kind of point out to you in three kind of quick points here. Here's the short answer, I think the Bible's philosophy, the Bible's theology of emotions is remarkably sophisticated and remarkably profound and really practical. So first of all, just to say, I'm I'm suggesting to you the Bible actually has a ton to say about emotions just like Aristotle and and Seneca and Plato did. And And I have found it, having studied this a lot, It is, the Bible's answer is the most beautiful, the most profound, and the most practical, even more than Stoicism, which I appreciate, and other things as well. And three then moves I want to go through briefly to help you see this. First, emotions in God's world, educating our emotions, and then some practical practices, right? So first, emotions in the world that God has made. Here's the basic idea. Emotions, whether you like them or not, or if, again, spent your whole life trying to deny them, they are a fundamental part of what it means to be human and a human made in God's own image. So what do I mean? Did God have emotions? Does God have emotions? In in theology, there's a big debate about this. And there's also kind of a a misunderstanding that has happened. In theology there's a lot of discussion, going back to uh, the church fathers actually, about whether God has emotions. And a lot of times people would answer in the negative and the doctrine that's associated with that is called God's impassibility. You hear that pass in there, that's passions impassibility is the theological doctrine that most Christians have held to, that God is impassible, that is he does not have passions. But I'd suggest to you that there's a sense in which that doctrine's right, I think there's the proper sense, and there's a sense in which we've misunderstood it. The proper sense is what they, what the ancient people meant by passions, that God is not controlled by these uncontrollable passions. Okay? And that, that's an absolutely central Christian understanding and Jewish understanding of the God of the Bible, that he is not controlled by passions outside of himself. And if you think about that in contrast to the Greek gods of mythology and the Roman gods, who are constantly getting mad and just doing, oh yeah, and just throwing a thunderbolt down or something. The key doctrine of impassibility that Christian Orthodox people have held to is that the true God of the Bible is not like that. He is not controlled by passions, okay? So that's the good sense of impassibility. But the bad sense that I think we've kind of just kind of trickled down to us who don't understand that ancient context, the bad sense of it is to think that the idea that God actually doesn't have emotions himself but all you have to do is open the Bible and you will see that God has a lot of emotions. For example, we can think of, um, even though God is not fickle and untrustworthy, um, he is a being who hates some things and loves other things, even is described as having regret or you know, disappointment even, and joy you start thinking about all the ways that God is described, there are a lot of them, and compassion. Now sometimes we might wanna say, well those are just, what are, the technical term is anthropomorphisms, that those are just ways that humans talk about God being like a human. But I would like to suggest to you that's not a sufficient explanation for how often the Bible talks about God and particularly thinking about how important it is that God has real emotions. Not uncontrollable passions, but real emotions The most important one being love. That love is more than just a choice or something. You remember, I'm sure you remember, maybe you don't remember, the great old illustration that John Piper used to use all the time about showing up at the door on his anniversary with his wife. And what if you did this? You showed up, knocked on the door, surprised your wife, and and she says, oh, that's so great. And, And you pull out the roses behind your back and say, it's fine, it's my duty, right? Again, another public service announcement. That's not a, it's not a good, good thing. What's wrong with that scenario? It's because you could say, well, love is a verb. Love is an action. Okay, it is, but it's deficient if there's not this mysterious thing that we call love, right? So, too, in our relationship with God. He's not controlled by uncontrollable passions but his relationship to us is one of genuine love. The fact that we know that experience of what love is is because we're made in his image, right? We would not know what love was if it were not for it being something that God himself has. So God has emotions, but if you're still not maybe convinced, let's think about Jesus, who is God incarnate, the exact representation of God. Does he have emotions? Yes, he does, a lot. I teach a class on the Sermon of the Mount regularly, and one of the things I do for that class is that I, I've collected a bunch of film versions of the Sermon on the Mount, and then I show them at different times, the, so it's usually a modular class, and so throughout the course of the week, for a one-week class, we will watch three or four film versions of it, just the Sermon of the Mount, and we'll also read it aloud in different translations in its entirety, which takes 17 or 20 minutes. It's a great thing to do. Just to, so we just hear the whole Sermon of the Mount over and over and over again. It's a great exercise. Well, what's very interesting is when I show the film versions, they, they have their own interpretation of the sermon, even if they're just saying the exact words. But there's one version that has made a lot of students mad, and it's the version from the visual Bible, it's called, of Matthew, where it is literally nothing but the words of the Sermon on the Mount in their exact order. Most, most Jesus films cut it up and put it in different places, but the visual Bible, it's really great, It has it exactly in the order, but what people don't like about it or sometimes feel troubled about it, is that Jesus in it is very happy. (laughs) Have you ever seen that version, the happy Jesus version? And it's really troubling to people a lot of times because we don't, first of all, he's got an American accent and obviously Jesus had a perfect British South of England accent, so that's the first (laughs) problem. We like our British Jesuses, we don't like American Jesuses. But then the second is that he's so happy and relatable. And it's really disturbing to students, or at least not disturbing, at least kind of unaware. And that's, that reveals again, and this is what B.B. Warfield said a long time ago as well, that Stoicism has actually influenced how we think about Jesus as if he was this like emotionless person. But what do the Gospels actually show? He has a lot of emotions going on, uh, as the, he is not a one of apatheia, and if he wept, he was angry, he lamented, which means he cried, right? We think a lot of texts like this. But if you were to go through the gospels and look at the three main emotions and like tabulate how often they occur, the first one is for sure compassionate. That's the primary way Jesus is described and that includes an emotion. Again, compassionate can never be defined by just doing the right thing to help somebody in need. Compassionate by its definition is an emotion. And if you, even if you did a good deed and it lacked whatever that emotion is of care or pity or compassion, whatever you want to call it, then it is not a completely virtuous deed. The emotion is absolutely essential to the experience. And then the second one uh, is anger. The second, and Jesus is described as angry many times and what's very interesting about his anger is that he's never angry at broken or sinful people. He's always angry at people who don't have compassion for broken people. Okay, let that sink in. So if you if you've got this, if you if you think Jesus is on your side when you're all mad at culture and all angry at a bunch of people, what I've, on either side, you don't have Jesus on your side. <laughs> there, Jesus' anger is for people who lack compassion for the broken. And it is the second most common emotion for him, but it's a a very particular version of anger for those. And who are Jesus' main enemies? It's the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are extremely conservative people, they're very morally upright people, they're inerrantists with the Bible, and they lack compassion. They lack a heart that's attuned with God. And then the third emotion is actually joy. There are all kinds of times and places where Jesus is described as being full of joy and it's kind of weird because we think, from Isaiah, we think of Jesus as a man of sorrows. Do you know that the, New the Gospels never describe him that way? I mean, there's a sense in which he was in terms of taking on the sins of the world. But the way the New Testament actually describes Jesus is being one. Oh Lord, we're getting static here again. I could just use the regular mic if I need to. Let me just switch to that. Why don't you just kill, the, kill that channel and I'll just use this, it's fine. So again, he, one of the things that's always good to remember about Jesus is that people really liked him, especially broken people. People were attracted to him. They loved him. He spent time with people. So I guarantee you, he was not the dour cold emotionless person that you see in like medieval paintings he was a man of joy and the new testament tells us that a lot so he's a man of great compassion anger at people who lack compassion and a man of great joy as well he and he is the exact representation of god and he has emotions and then the final little thing to think about this as it relates to us i already mentioned this with the the john piper illustration kind of with compassion as well have you thought about how many times God actually commands us to have certain emotions like rejoicing, having compassion, being patient, which is a really a kind of emotion, grieving and regretting, fearing and not fearing, and of course ultimately loving, and that loving, which is the se- first and second greatest commandments are an emotion, and they're not only an emotion in the sense that you just sit around and say, in fact the Bible's really clear if you think you love your neighbor and don't do anything about it. It's not really love like 1 John 317, right? So it's it's not only an emotion, but it's not less than an emotion because if you write a check for a million dollars to some cause and you really don't care, is that completely virtuous? It's not. God sees and cares about our interior person, our hearts, our, emotional makeup and our emotional experiences are a central part of what it means to be a godly person, a person of compassion and love and joy and grief and brokenness. And then think about the fruit of the Spirit. Have you ever just paid attention? This sort of primary criterion by which the New Testament describes who's a Christian and who's not. And notice again, The New Testament does not define Christianity, a lot of time being a Christian, a lot of times Christianity does or the church does as having a certain set of doctrinal beliefs and a a certain set of external morals. Those are both fine things, but the primary way, in fact, the the central way that the New Testament describes who's a Christian and who's not is by whether they manifest the fruit of the spirit because the spirit looks like something. That's how you can tell whether someone's life is marked by the spirit. And and think about how many of those, those specific fruits of the spirit are actually emotions, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. Some of those are explicitly emotions. Some of them, I think all of them are related to having some emotion in a certain way. And those are what are called the fruit of the spirit. And then these are the flesh, listen to them as well. They are sexual morality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, and listen to the emotions that are in there too. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. So the point here is, friends, and there's more we could say about this, is that emotions are a big part of what it means to be human, and especially humans made in the image of God. So in the next point then, so what do we do about it? And this is the point of educating our emotions. I'd suggest to you that the biblical view of emotions is primarily a cognitive one. It's closest to the Aristotelian view in that it does emphasize that we can over time educate our emotions or train our emotions in certain ways. It's not a quick fix. There's all kinds of other things often going on but growth in virtue growth in godliness starts with a self-awareness and that includes recognizing that god is calling us to learn to shape our emotional life in a certain way and it's all for the purpose of experiencing true human life or human flourishing so the you know we always have to Be careful not to be naive and to not fall into the ditch on either side to say that that emotions have nothing to do with neurology and chemicals. They do. Um, You know, or on the other side to say that they're only neurology and chemicals, You, you know, both both of those things are extremes and the truth is in between, but that we can learn over time to again educate our emotions. Reality matters, real circumstances matter. And this, I don't have time to get into all this, but this is, at the end of the day, this is why I'm not a Stoic, even though I really appreciate Stoicism, is at the end of the day, Stoicism, its answer is not based on a a realistic view of the world in this sense. That for a Stoic, Seneca, one of the greatest, would say something like this, is that you are only hurt the moment you imagine yourself to be so let that sink in, that's like a Seneca saying. There's a lot of wisdom in that, in this sense, that you and I can learn to pay attention, like when you feel hurt, like maybe this morning, maybe somebody hurt your feelings, maybe it was your spouse, maybe you felt like somebody slighted you, took the last piece of bacon, or maybe uh, slighted you and didn't give you the attention you deserve, whatever it is, maybe it was last night, this weekend, the wisdom of somebody like Seneca would be, okay, pay attention to that and and recognize that a lot of that probably is me, not the other person. That's me interpreting the situation, so that's true. The problem with stoicism ultimately is that it can't really accommodate for the fact that there really is bad in the world. There really are bad things that happen. There is sexual abuse, there's physical abuse, there is um, you know, true disappointments and loss that happens through theft or disease or whatever. And the beautiful thing about Christianity is that it it doesn't say the key to being happy is to just act like none of that stuff really exists. The key to being happy is to actually recognize that is the reality and that God is going to set the world to right. He's going to reverse these things. So our emotions matter, but we also Don't have to be an entire victim to them because we can learn to educate them over our time and I'm going to come back to this in the last session later. Let me close. But this practical emotional practices. So what do we do? Well, I always like to emphasize is very important. Mental health issues are real. There are neurological and psychological trauma issues that make this way more complicated. So don't hear anything that I've said so far, what I'm about to say as if it is in denial of those things, because it's not. There are very real chemical and neurological, medicinal issues that need to be addressed and psychological ones as well. So one of my dearest friends, a professional counselor says, everybody needs to be in counseling at some point and a lot of people need to be in it all the time. And I really agree. I think everybody should be. I've been to therapy more than once. Everybody, I think, needs counseling at some point. So I don't want to deny those things. At the same time, what does the Bible, what's the kind of general way that the Bible thinks about emotions? Well, I want to give you two practices. The first is reflection and the second is prayer. Think about all the times that the Bible tells us to reflect on things to think about. You think of like Deuteronomy six that talks about impressing the things of God unto children, talking about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, write them on the door frames of your house, etc. That habit of intentional reflection comes from the Bible's incredible wisdom that as we think about things, so we come to feel about them. It's just a reality, right? And this is why the Bible is constantly telling us to think about God to reflect deeply on what God has done and who he is, because it's not a quick fix to all of our emotions, but it does shape us over time to inhabit the world in a certain way. The constant invitation to reflection. You think of Matthew 6, 19 to 34, where Jesus addresses this issue of anxiety, a powerful emotion for all of us. Some of you are completely debilitated by anxiety all the time. And again, that could be neurological as much as anything. But when Jesus addresses the very real emotion of anxiety, he invites us to reflect on the nature of God, that God provides for all his creatures and he's faithful. And that, that, that again, it's not a quick fix, but it's a way that shapes our souls over time. And then the second practice is prayer. And I mean by this prayer, both confession and prayer of supplication. One of the most beautiful things about the, the Bible's philosophy of emotions compared to Plato and Aristotle and others is that it deals with one of the most powerful emotions any of us ever feel, which are guilt and shame. Now there's such a thing as a, as a false guilt and false shame, that's for sure, but there's also real guilt and real shame for things that we've done wrong, ways we've hurt other people, things we've you know, failed to do. And those emotions of guilt and shame when they're based on reality, not falsely, when they're based on reality, those are devastating emotions. In fact, shame is the first emotion that Adam and Eve experience at the fall. Right. And it has continued to affect us greatly. The beauty of the Bible and the beauty of God is that he actually addresses that and gives us a way to process guilt and shame. And it's through the prayer of confession, that by confessing honestly before God, the fact that we are guilty and are full of shame, over time we can learn to actually process those emotions and find forgiveness and cleansing and healing. And isn't that beautiful? Because if you think about the alternatives, the alternatives would be when you feel guilt and shame, you're never gonna feel good about that, so just deny those things, those aren't true of you, you know, it's, those are bad emotions. You just need to flee from those. Or the other is, you know, just to be wallowed and, and destroyed by them. God offers the way over time to educate our emotions through the practice of actually learning to confess. So friends, when you feel guilt and shame for something you've really done, don't run away from it. Don't blame somebody else. Don't self justify, don't collapse. Recognize God has made a way for you to actually process those powerful emotions through being vulnerable and honest with Him, confessing them and finding forgiveness, actual forgiveness and restoration. Don't deny those emotions. They're a gift to help you pay attention to what's really going on in your life. And the other kind of prayer is supplication. All the things that mark our lives, especially anxiety, fears about the future, regrets about the past, especially fears about the future. God has made a way, one of my favorite verses is from 1 Peter, cast your anxieties upon the Lord. Why? Because He cares for you. Notice that emotional language. God isn't saying, how dare you have anxieties? That's not faith. That's not what He says at all. He says anxiety is a part of normal life because we're limited creatures and we do do not control our future. And so anxiety is something we're all gonna experience. And so the invitation, the practice that over time we can learn to educate our emotions is to actually learn to cast them upon someone who cares for us. Again, don't deny that they're real because if you deny that you're feeling anxiety, what it's gonna make you do is a bunch of sideways stuff. You're gonna treat people badly, you're gonna often addictions, all kinds of things come out of that. And also, you know, don't just give yourself over to nihilism and despair. God has made a way when you face anxiety to cast your cares upon him because he cares for you, right? And it's not a quick fix, don't hear me saying that, but it's a thing that over time, like learning your scales on the guitar, or whatever it is, over time you can educate your soul to relate to God in a certain way, because He cares. He cares about the reality of this deep part of what it means to be human, to be made in His image, which are our emotions. So we could look at Psalm 32, Psalm 51, other places that look at that, but that that is the idea. I just wanna invite you to think about the beauty and goodness of how God has made us as humans with emotions and that the Bible, you don't have to go a million other places, although there's good things to find. You don't have to go a million other places to understand how much the Bible talks about emotions. It's all over the place and these really practical ways that he invites us to educate them over time. All right. Let me pray. What's our, we're probably out of time, aren't we, Bruce? What time is it? Yeah. <laughs> that was very diplomatic. Yeah. We're pretty much out of time. Okay. So, yes, we're way over time probably. <laughs> So don't right now. Okay, great. All right, so if you're feeling strongly that you need to ask a question, I wanna validate that emotion, but you're not able to to fulfill it right now, so. Please. Yeah. Yeah, cultivating the emotion of love. Yeah. Genuine love, yeah. Right. The good emotion of it, yeah. So, so the question if you didn't hear it is what about, so if love is important, it's the primary first and second greatest commandments, and it's not just duty, how do you cultivate that if the emotional part's true? Is that a fair question? Yeah, great question. Um, well, you know, ask God to fill you with the Spirit. I don't mean that tritely, because that's the first fruit of the Spirit is love. But in terms of what we can do, here's one of the great principles, those of you who have been parents know this. It's one of the principles that I've thought about for parenting for a long time, is that there is a place for duty on the way to virtue. That's how I sum it up. So in other words, the virtue is that we both do things and we do it out of compassion right we don't just do things hard-heartedly nor do we say we have compassion and not do things right so the the virtue is both compassion and action the reality is because we're habitual creatures who are always becoming something different a lot of times we need to do the act even if the heart isn't fully there yet aware of that and even paying attention to it and asking God but in the doing of the act, the duty, that actually becomes the avenue by which a lot of times the, the love will catch up to it. Now, what you have to be aware of is that, again, don't ever be content to, have, to do heartless service, right? But it also doesn't tend to work to just do nothing then, <laughs> right? If you just do nothing and just wait till you feel this great compassion, that's not really how the human body works. As we do, so we become. And so this is the kind of the mystery. And if you pay attention to other areas of your life where you've done this, that a lot of times the emotions lag behind the duty and you want it to be there, but it is the duty that enables the emotions to finally catch up. That's what I'd say. So, great. Okay. Do you want to? I'll pray and then we'll close. Thank you God for the beauty of Holy Scripture that teaches and instructs and is so full and so transformative. And I pray for myself and my hearers that you would indeed fill us with your spirit, make us people of love. And we pray these things in Jesus' powerful name, amen.